Let's turn in the scriptures to the Song of Songs. Last week, we began a study of this powerful poem. I was not planning on teaching it again for three weeks, but as I explained in yesterday's email, since this past Tuesday morning, I've had a pretty strong sense that I should change the plan and preach on this next portion of the song. So today I'm actually adding another message to this little series rather than preaching three messages on the song. Uh, with today's, there'll be, Lord willing, four. King Solomon, who lived nine centuries before Jesus and who ruled as king in Jerusalem for about 40 years, was one of history's greatest philosophers and one of history's greatest philosophical authors. He wrote this book, The Song of Songs, which focuses on wisdom for sexuality. He also wrote Proverbs, which focuses on how to live well in every facet of life. And he wrote Ecclesiastes, which focuses on wisdom for meaning in all of life. And I think he also penned Job, which focuses on wisdom and suffering, especially suffering that seems so meaningless. The scriptures say that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. How many proverbs are you internationally known for? He spoke 3,000. And his published songs were 1,005 in number. And this is his Song of Songs. He wrote 1,005. This is his greatest song. As I taught last week, there's strong indication, especially in Ecclesiastes, that Solomon repented in his old age. For example, in Ecclesiastes 2, which was clearly written by him retrospectively, he says that throughout his life he pursued pleasure. He multiplied wives. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. But then he goes on to say, but as I looked at everything, it was so meaningless. My life to that point was like chasing the wind. Later in the book, he counsels the next generation to live monogamously. That's in chapter 9, verse 9. And he says, receive God's designed pleasures in life as a good gift from his hand, but with full knowledge that you will give an account to the God who gave you these good gifts. Chapters 11, chapter 12, Solomon emphasizes the coming judgment before which we will all stand and give an account. If that's the case, then Solomon wrote this book as a way of saying, learn from my horrible life experience. You might look at my choices, my choices of multiplying wives, and think, oh, I wish that I could live with the kind of pleasure that Solomon enjoyed. And Solomon is saying, no, a thousand times no, I'm here to tell you, be wise, get wisdom, live with sexual control, controlling your sexuality so that you live within the boundaries for which the designer designed it. This is the message of the Song of Songs. It's a wisdom book. From last week's first study, 
as we looked at the beginning and the end of the book, we saw that God's counsel in this book especially focuses, ironically, on singles. He urges everyone, but especially singles. He says, consider the power and the beauty of God's design in human sexuality. And he urges especially singles to commit to reserving these joys, these powerful longings for the good gift of marriage, exclusive lifelong covenant. And we saw in the climactic poem of the book that romantic love is likened to a fire. This is the sort of thing that is absolutely lovely within a fireplace or in a fire pit. But it is tragic. Fire is absolutely tragic when it is wild in an open forest. And the heart of that final poem, that climactic poem on romantic, jealous love being like a fire, at the very heart of it, we are told that it is designed to reflect the very heart of God who has jealous, committed, covenantal love for the people he died to save. It's a powerful, powerful book. Today, we are going to read just three poems from chapter 2, verse 8, to chapter 3, verse 11, to the end of chapter 3. They're just three poems. The first two poems were written by his bride, and they express her longing for her groom. The third is written by the chorus, and it recalls the glorious wedding procession. At that magnificent ceremony, Solomon's bride approached him, being carried in a royal carriage. And the final glimpse of him at the end of chapter 3 is that he was standing at the head of the procession with ecstatic joy. Follow along as I read. She says, chapter 2, verse 8, recalling his invitation. It's the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. She's describing his eagerness to be with her, his strength, his grace. She says, behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. You almost get the uh, the imagery of Romeo and Juliet. He's trying to get her attention. My beloved speaks and says to me, and here, What follows is his invitation, his proposal. Arise quickly, my love, my beautiful one. Come away with me. For behold, the winter's past. The rain is over and gone. Spring is here, in other words. The flowers appear on the earth. The time for the singing of the birds has come. The cooing of the turtle dove is heard in our countryside. The fig tree ripens its figs. The grapevines are in blossom. They're about to give forth their lovely fragrance. The blossoming of the the earth becomes a metaphor for the blossoming of their relationship. He repeats again, Arise, my love, my beautiful one. Come away with me. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. That seems to be the end of his invitation that she's recalling. 
It's interesting that she then responds to that invitation, really interesting, by challenging him to protect their relationship. He's inviting her, wooing her, and she says, buddy, protect our relationship. He, she uses the imagery of foxes in a vineyard, and she says, guard our relationship from anything that threatens to tear it down. In our area, I don't know how many of you go to Holden Arboretum through the years we have enjoyed it so much. There, they have invested millions to keep deer out of the rhododendron gardens. That might be an image that we would use in our day in our area. I can imagine that Solomon was remembering her words when he gave this invitation and she said, are you going to protect our relationship? I can only imagine he was remembering her ominous words with tears. Verse 15, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in blossom. And then she expresses delight in him and in intimacy with him. She says, my beloved is completely mine and I'm completely his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. That was the first of three poems. She remembered her groom's invitation. I pointed out last week, based on the research of Arden, that this entire book is one massive chiasm. We are not going to study chapter 7, but let me point out just visually the chiasm. It's profound. You can see that this book is consistently driving toward the center, which is in chapter 5, where the king is in the garden with his bride. The second poem that we're going to be studying today also expresses longing, but it does so in a different way. The bride remembers a season of nightmares, repeated nightmares that her husband was gone. Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed at night, or you might say night after night, I had the same dream. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves, I sought him, but I found him not. So, she says, I determined to risk great danger in her dream. I'm going to rise up and go about the city in the streets and the squares. I'm going to seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. Instead, the watchmen found me as they went about making their rounds in the city. So I cried out to these watchmen of the city, Have you seen the one whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, I wouldn't let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Interestingly, again, I pointed this out twice last week, but there's a stop. And in this recollection of intimacy, the bride looks out and in verse 5, she commands all the singles who are watching this reader's theater play going on. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That was the second poem. Again, the first one was a remembrance of the proposal that inflamed her longings. 
The second was of nightmares that expressed her longings. And now we come to the third, which is the wedding that fulfills her longings. This third poem is the last one we're going to read this morning, and it recalls the bridal procession at King Solomon's wedding. And you'll see how it ends so gloriously. Verse 6. The others speak. I think these are probably the bride's brothers, her protective brothers, the ones who were responsible for keeping her until she was married. What is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and fragrance, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it's Solomon's royal carriage carrying the princess. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. That's twice the number of David's mighty men. All of them are wearing swords and they're experts in war. Each with a sword at his thigh, ready to defend against terrors by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the finest wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And while the focus is on this approaching princess, she verbally turns everyone's attention to the groom. Verse 11. Go out, O daughters of Jerusalem, Zion. Look upon King Solomon in all his majesty. He's standing there adorned with the crown with which his mother crowned him. Here he is on the day of his wedding. On the day of the gladness of his heart. Wow, what a gorgeous poem. Note where it ends. Focused on the ecstatic joy of Solomon as his bride approached him. Again, if Solomon is writing this poem at the end of his life as an older repentant man, as interpreters throughout Jewish and Christian history have taught, I can only imagine that he was remembering that day and the glories of it with tears over the beauty that he shattered with his life choices for decades and decades. Before I state the main point, I think it's just critical that I reflect a little bit on what we read. I pointed out that the first two poems focus on longings in two different ways, and then the third poem focuses on on the fulfillment of those longings. And right at the hinge point between the two poems of longing And the fulfillment of those longings on the day of the wedding is that little verse 5 for singles. Don't stoke these fires until the time is right. This book is written to say that the longings and the beauties of married love must be reserved for exclusive covenant. The exclusive covenant of marriage. I think it's a really remarkable strategy, though, for how the book teaches singles. The book doesn't simply say, sex is bad. Stay away from it. Watch out. Beware. The strategy is exactly opposite. By the way, sex is not bad, as I pointed out last week. This is God's good gift that has been twisted by Satan. And the twistings of it infect our culture internationally. Right? There are bad things that can be done with it, but it is fundamentally a good gift. But the strategy of this book is completely different. 
It's not saying, watch out, bad, bad, bad. It's saying, it's so good. Do you see the way it's designed? Do you see how the designer designed it? Take care. It's so precious. That's the strategy. It's a powerful strategy. In the third poem, then, the bridal procession is remembered. So you have the longings, that little warning, and then finally the fulfillment of those longings on wedding day. We find out that no expense has been spared in the fragrances, in the majesty of the procession. The choicest wood from Lebanon are used in this beautiful chair that the bride is sitting on. It's decked with silver and gold and purple cloths, some of the most expensive in the ancient world. And the description seems to really center on the protection of the bride, something that the brothers would have very much appreciated. She is accompanied by 60 experienced swordsmen. Spectacular. And yet the final glimpse of the poem is reserved for the groom who is standing there in gladness of heart, smiling from ear to ear, probably crying with joy as his bride approaches him. Now I'm ready to state the main point. I think it's basically saying, believers, the longings and delights of committed romance are worthy of deep reflection, since they're designed to reflect our longings for the God who is eternally committed to us. I'm going to have two very simple points in application, and we're moving toward conclusion. We're not going to take long in this message. We're moving toward the Lord's Supper, but let me reiterate the main point. There are longings and delightful fulfillments of romantic love in this section we're reading. And those longings and delights of committed romance are worth deep reflection because they're designed to reflect our longings for the God who is eternally committed to us. That's how I'd state the main idea. Now I have two applications in conclusion. The first is this. Christians, reflect on the rules and responsibilities of committed romance. What you see on the surface in terms of human romance is what you should see first. You should look at this book and you should say, it is designed to teach us to live well. It's a wisdom book. Human sexuality and romantic longings are a significant part of human life. They're an inescapable part of human life. It's no wonder, as one scholar said, that God gave us a whole book to teach us how to use them wisely. Sexuality and romance are a a significant part of human life. It is critical that we use them wisely. So I stop here on this first application and I say, what are some of the rules and the responsibilities of human sexuality and committed romance? Let me first speak to those who are married. If you're married, verbalize your fears. Talk explicitly about your fears being apart from each other. 
Express your longings. Verbalize your longings for one another. Take time to express these things. You might look at the song and learn from its model to read old love letters that you wrote to one another when you were dating. Or sit down right now and journal memories of your wedding day. You'd get that from reading the song. Fight off foxes that are in your vineyard. It's a direct application from the song. Take stock of your marriage. Identify threats to your oneness and agree together to fight them. Another thing you might get is plan a getaway. Plan a getaway so that you can express your oneness and protect your oneness through time together. These would be things right on the surface that are counseling wisdom if you're married. If you're not married, this same passage is saying, control your longings. Seek solid friendships with believers who encourage you and help protect you in living according to God's design for your sexuality. Seek strong friendships. Make much of weddings. Singles. Be full of celebratory joy on the wedding days of your friends. Rejoice in God's good gift that He's giving to them. And commit that you will not give your heart, your body to someone else until, if the Lord wills, your own wedding day. Wait. Whether you are married or unmarried, one of the things that the song does is it drives a dagger through the heart of our culture's lie that you are a victim of the whims and the longings and the feelings of your own heart. Our culture says, follow your heart. Who do you think you are to go against what your heart wants? Be true to yourself. That's not what Solomon teaches is wise. The wise life is of someone who controls his or her heart. You say, how do you control your heart? This is the fundamental message of the Bible. You need the Spirit of God to control your wild heart. But the promise of the Scriptures for everyone who trusts Jesus is that the Spirit of Christ works in your heart a true change so that you don't want to rebel against God's Word and against God's rules, but you want to follow God and submit to His rules. It's the Spirit who works that change. And living under the power of the Spirit can give you power to live under the authority of Jesus so that the fruit of your life is self-control. The way to control your heart, your wild, untamed, deceptive heart, is through the Spirit of God changing your heart, regenerating your heart, governing your heart. This is the message of the Bible. If you are not a follower of Jesus, then I urge you to consider reality. Reality is, you and me by nature are rebels. We want to be our own authority. And because of that, 
we will face God's just judgment because we wanted to live under our own authority rather than under the authority of the God who made us. And yet the message of the Bible is that God didn't leave us there in our rebellion and in our certain condemnation. God sent his one and only son in love to die in our place, to bear our punishment as the Lamb of God, as the substitute for us, so that anyone who repents, who humbly admits his or her own waywardness and desire to be their own authority, anyone who admits that and turns and says, Jesus, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, Lamb of God, Jesus, save me, rule me, control me, shepherd me, Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. If you have never done that, I urge you, call on the Lord Jesus to be saved today. This is a wisdom book. It's designed to teach us to live well. The way to live well is to live under the authority of Jesus. And it's only when you're controlled by the power of God's Spirit that you can live out, whether single or married, the wisdom of this book. The second application. Christian, reflect on the way that every committed romance pictures human history. I love this. This takes us right to the Lord's table. Reflect on how every committed romance pictures human history. Let me be very clear. I don't think that the Song of Songs is an allegory. It describes human romance, human marriage. But from the scriptures, I am convinced that every marriage is designed by God to be allegorical. Every marriage is designed by God to picture something much greater. Weddings and marriages are not the ultimate experience of life. If you think they are, you will be disillusioned. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship in life. A relationship with God through faith in Jesus is. Every marriage is designed to point to that more significant relationship. Wedding days are not the ultimate human experience. Seeing Jesus' face will be the ultimate human experience. And every longing of romance, and every glorious wedding is designed to point to that. It's designed by God to point to that. So I'm going to give some direct advice based right on this passage. Christians, say with the bride, behold, he comes. In this passage, behold, he comes. The words of the bride about her eager groom sound very, very similar to the words Jesus used to teach his disciples about his own coming. In Matthew 25, 6, Jesus says that the day of his coming is going to be alerted with a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes! I think Jesus is intentionally alluding to the Song of Songs. Christian, Every day, you should be longing for the return of your groom. You should be saying with the bride, behold, he's coming. Second, Christians say with the bride, I am his and he is mine. 
This time of longing for the groom is a time of self-control. There is clear covenantal language in chapter 2, verse 16, where the bride says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. It appears repeatedly throughout the song, and it deliberately parallels the covenant formula all throughout the Bible. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be theirs, and they will be mine. Marriage is designed by God to reflect his own covenant-keeping love. And so until you see your Savior's face, until you see the face of the one, the Lamb who bought you with his blood, remain faithful to him. Keep yourself for him. Keep resisting temptation to cheat on him and live for yourself. Keep saying, I belong to him. He belongs to me. I'm going to live for that day. And finally, based on chapter 311, I say, Christian, reflect with the bride on that glad wedding day. Every glorious wedding is supposed to point ahead to the great wedding day when the church, that is the congregation of all the people for whom Jesus died, When the church is presented, I'm reading Paul in Ephesians 5, the church is presented to Jesus in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's going to be a glorious day. Believers, that day is called in Revelation 19, the great wedding reception of the Lamb. There's going to be a day when we are presented in glory to the king who shed his blood to save us. That future day still awaits. That great wedding procession and wedding reception, it's still in the future. And Jude says, I'm reading Jude 24, that our groom is going to keep us. He's going to protect us until we're presented blameless on that day. Before his presence, get ready. Before his presence, with exceeding joy. Hmm. What's going to be the face of your groom on that magnificent wedding day? It's going to be filled with gladness of heart. So Christian, reflect with the bride on the great wedding day. Every great romance involves seasons of controlled longings. Every great romance involves a glad wedding day when those longings are fulfilled. And human history itself is one sustained longing for the great wedding day of Israel's greatest king who died for his bride. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would inflame our longings for our king. Fuel our self-control for our King. Help us, Lord, whether we're single or married, to wisely use your good gifts of sexuality and romance for our King. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen.